Psalms chapter number 3, verse 1, David says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. I pray that the Spirit of God would take his sword, the word of God, and that he'd do a work in our hearts and minds. Lord, we need comfort from you. We need encouragement. We need conviction from you. We need to be challenged from you. Lord, we just need more desperately than anything to hear from heaven tonight. And Lord, we'll be sure to give you the praise, honor, and glory when it's accomplished, for it will be due to your glory and your name that you've done it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you notice the little uh, description that's given at the beginning of this psalm, I believe it informs us a little bit about the frame of mind, the circumstances around which David penned down this psalm under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. It says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, if you study the life of David, you know that this was really one of the lowest points in his life. David was not a man without his share of dirty laundry and skeletons in the closet. And certainly he was not a, a man that did not make mistakes in life. In fact, I think that we have a tendency sometimes, even with David, to pay more attention to his uh, mistakes, to his defeats, than to his victories. Uh, but of all of the low points in David's life, I, you know, we could talk about his, uh, his backsliddenness and his, uh, his exile and his fleeing to the Philistines to uh, take refuge from Saul. Which, by the way, it's very interesting that when David was fleeing from his enemies, he went to the Philistines. And we look at it and we say, well, how could he do such a thing? But then several years later, what happens when his son is fleeing from David? He runs to the Philistines. Can I give a word of caution, exhortation to those of us that are parents? Chances are where we spend our rebellious times will be the very place our kids will run to when they begin to flee from our authority. We better be cautious. We might wind up like Elimelech, go to sojourn in Moab for a little while, wind up burying some kids down there. We better be circumspect in how we live our lives because we do establish patterns by our behavior. I don't think it was an accident that Absalom, when he flees, he flees into the land of the Philistines. But we could talk about the year and a half that David spent living amongst the Philistines. We could talk, of course, about uh, David's rebellion and sin and numbering the children of Israel. And uh, thousands died because of that sin. We could talk about David's sin and going in unto Bathsheba. And uh, though just in that instance, the only two people that it died in that instance were Uriah and the baby, the sword never departed from David's home because of that sin. And in fact, the instance with Absalom was a direct consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba. On and on we could go talking about David's mistakes, but there's something unique about what happened with Absalom. It seemed to hit David harder than anything else. Those of us that have children think there's nothing strange about that. Nothing gets to you the way your kids get to you. Amen? And uh, so, uh, to give you a little bit of background on what took place, David had many sons, he had several wives, 
And uh, he had a son by the name of Amnon. And uh, he also had a daughter by the name of Tamar. Now, Tamar was the sister, the full sister of Absalom. She was only a half-sister to Amnon. And the Bible records for us that Amnon fell in love with Tamar, became infatuated with her. And he devised a means that he could trap her and corner her, and he abused Tamar. And when this was brought to the uh, attention of David, David did nothing about it. And Absalom, when he learns that his father's not going to uh, exact any punishment, not going to require anything at Amnon's hand, Absalom decides he's going to take matters into his own hand. And so he devises a, a feast that he's going to call all of his brethren to. And at that feast, he intends on killing Amnon. And he calls all of his brethren together. He gets them good and drunk. And uh, then he has his, his servants fall on Amnon and kill Amnon. Well, word reaches David that this has happened. Only the messenger, when he gives the message, he doesn't say just Amnon's dead. He says all the sons are dead. But Absalom, rather than going back to David, rather than facing his father, he flees into the land of Jeshur, into the land of the Philistines. For three years he spends in the land of the Philistines in exile. David won't allow him back home. In fact, if it wasn't for Joab, Absalom probably never would have come back home. Joab goes to a wise woman of Tekoa and uh, asks her that she would sort of uh, put on a costume and feign as though she was a needy person coming before the king to ask a favor. And she does that and she goes in and basically describes out the situation with Absalom, but says that she desires to bring her son back home, but can't because some of the family has sworn that they would kill him. And David says, well, don't worry about that. Just bring him home. Says, I'll do anything that it takes to keep uh, your son protected. And at that point, the woman of Tekoa says, well, you do that for my son. Why won't you do it for your son? And I love the way that the Bible says it, that, uh, that, uh, that the Lord has sought by all means to bring his departed home. Aren't you glad the Lord sought by all means to bring us home? Well, David begrudgingly recognizes the error of his ways. And he allows Absalom to come back home. But for two more years, he doesn't allow Absalom back into his presence. And finally, Absalom manages, and you can read your Bible, you can see all the circumstances around it, but he finally gains an audience with King David. And when he goes in, it seems as though all is made well. Absalom and David, they hug each other, they kiss each other. It seems as though the family has been reconciled. But evidently that event, left deep and abiding scars on the young man because he did not let it go. As soon as he realized his father's suspicions had been satisfied and had been put to bed, he begins to develop a new conspiracy, a new plot. Only this time, it's not Amnon or any of his brethren that are in his crosshairs, but it's his own father and his father's throne. And he decides he's going to steal the hearts of the children of Israel. And by flattery and by promises, he does that very thing. And then Absalom one day institutes a rebellion, a coup, against his father David. He takes the throne away from him. Uh, He runs David out of Jerusalem. And David has to flee from his own throne, his own palace, his own city. It's under these circumstances that David pins this psalm. And this psalm represents what was one of the greatest failures in his life. It was a governmental failure, for he had failed to see to his own kingdom. It was a parental failure, for he had failed to govern his own son and to show compassion to his own son. And I'd say this, it was a spiritual failure too. Because when he went to forgive, he half forgave. 
And let me just say this. I understand folks hurt you, and I've been hurt, and you've probably been hurt. You may have been hurt by me. But the fact is, when we need to forgive someone, a a half-forgiveness is no forgiveness at all. If he had brought Absalom back at the end of that three years and immediately welcomed him back in, it could be that this dark chapter would have never been written on David's life. But because he decided to hold it over his head a little longer, there was irreparable damage done. So here's David. He's on the run. He's been ousted from his throne. He literally, at any moment, the armies of Absalom could come and overtake them and destroy him. And in that context, David says this in verse 5. He says, I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid, he says, of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. He asks the Lord, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. And this is how he ends it. Now think about it. We have no reason to believe his circumstances change from verse 1 to verse 8. But he closes this psalm by saying, Salvation belongeth unto the Lord, thy blessing is upon thy people, Selah. David managed to find a source of comfort while he was in one of the most troublesome, wearisome, discouraging, disheartening circumstances of his life. I want to preach to you for a moment or two tonight on the thought, Peace in Exile. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation similar to David. Maybe because we've done something to bring it upon ourselves like David did. Maybe we haven't. But one way or another, we find ourselves in a place of deep disturbance and distress. And we cannot control the circumstances outside of us, but we can control the spirit within us. And I believe that we can find in what David found rest in, we can find rest in those circumstances. I see three things that I want to share with you very quickly. Let me say number one tonight, that in the midst of exile, in the midst of great turmoil, David rested in a precedent. Now, a precedent is something that establishes a pattern, or it is the pattern itself being relived and manifest over and over and over again. And David makes an astonishing statement in verse 5. He says, I laid me down and slept, I awaked. Now, let me pause there and say this, that every person that's ever lived can testify that they've had that experience. Amen? Every person in this room could give that same testimony right now. You may have not slept well, you may have not slept much, but if you slept any at all last night, and maybe if you can't say it about last night, you can say it about the night before, and the night before, and the night before, and the night before. If you go too far back and you can't say it, you ought to be at the hospital, not at church. Somebody say amen to that. But everybody in this room could give that same testimony. And yet in that, David sees the hand of God. He says, I did this, why? For the Lord sustained me. Notice with me the example of this precedent that he gives. The fact that he went to sleep, that he slept, that he woke up. He sees in that the very hand of God. Now, you and I might not see the hand of God so clearly. But remember for David, he literally, I don't think it's an exaggeration when he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Literally the armies of Absalom were combing the hillside looking for him and his companions. And he recognizes that the fact that he's seen the sun rise again is a testimony to the grace and faithfulness of God. You know, we all have a choice as to how we will meet each day. We all have a choice as to what significance we will see in each day. I think there is a tendency sometimes 
for us to wake up, especially if we've been having a rough time, especially if you've been dealing with sickness, something like that, to wake up and think, oh, another day. (laughs) But yet, the very fact that God has given us another day tells us that God has a plan for our life. And it tells us that God has not abandoned us. I see not only the example that he gives that he slept, that he laid down, he slept, he woke up, but notice the explanation of this precedent. With all of his enemies looking for him, that tells him two things. One, that God is watching over his slumber. That while he was asleep, God must have been watching over him. Uh, you think about the the sickness and the, the illness and the really life-threatening, debilitating uh, situations that so many people, even just in our little church, are, are dealing with right now. Uh, we mentioned Sue Cooper, and I, I can remember a time just a couple years ago when you wouldn't have thought there was anything in the world wrong with Sue, other than Ted. But other than that, you wouldn't have, you would have thought there was anything wrong with Sue. And then one day, one trip to the doctor, one phone call, one test, and her life's in disarray. On and on we could go with example after example. There's people, listen, every every day that I go into a hospital, I, most of them I have to walk by the emergency room to get anywhere that I'm going. And every time you can look over and see families shattered. People that did not expect to be there, that did not plan on having to sit in that emergency room waiting that day. And the fact that you and I aren't sitting there is just the grace of God. We can look at each day as though it's an obligation or a burden, or we can look at it as a blessing. The fact that we wake up in the morning is testimony to the fact that God has watched over us through the night. But not only that God is watching over our slumber, but that He's watching over our situation. In other words, God's not just watching me as I sleep. God's watching all my problems as I sleep. When he says that there's ten thousands of people and he says they've set themselves against me round about, he's saying literally it's like they're outside the cave. They're looking for me. They're searching for me. In other places he would talk about his enemies being like dogs that were howling outside of the city. And David recognized that danger lay await at every single turn. He said when he was running from Saul that there was just a step between him and death. And yet he found the peace to lay down, pillow his head, and go to sleep. How is this? Because he understood, not only was God paying attention to him, but all those problems that he felt he had to worry over, God was tending to those as well. We preached a little bit about Moses on Sunday morning, and I was very encouraged when the Lord showed me. I'll be honest, I'll give you a little glimpse into my mind. It might get scary, amen, so buckle up. But a little glimpse into my mind when I'm studying. A lot of times when I'm studying an Old Testament story, I'll look at names and I'll look at people and their functions, and I'll try to see if there's any typological significance there. Do they represent anything? And I was looking at Miriam. Miriam, the sister of Moses, she's not really a good figure most of the time in the Bible. She doesn't really do very many commendable things. And I was looking at Miriam, this little girl following the, the child Moses, and I was trying to attribute some personality or some some entity to it, trying to understand where the, the piece fit in the whole puzzle. And it dawned on me just the very simple thought of this, that never once did Moses fall outside of the eyesight and watch care of somebody. Even though Jochebed turned her face away from that baby, God had somebody watching over him all the time. And we have a tendency sometimes to think if we're not worrying and watching our problems, then we must be neglecting them. I'm glad to know that even when we lay down, pillow our head and go to sleep, we have a God that the Bible says never sleeps nor slumbers. That's always watching our situation and circumstances. I see not only the 
example of this precedent, the explanation of it, but I see the extension of it. He says this, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. In other words, he's saying, I don't have to be afraid because I got, know God's watching me. I, I don't have to be afraid because I know God's watching my problems, my circumstances. And you can imagine that he, he is thinking to himself, I do not know what lays outside of these caves or outside of this house. I do not know what is laying for me on the other side of the ridge. But I know that whatever it is, God already has control of the situation. Listen, I, I, the health and wealth preachers will tell you that if you just believe hard enough and if you name it and if you claim it and if you declare it, that you're never going to have no problems. But I've never seen that in my life. In fact, in my experience, often the people that are the most choice Christians go through the deepest suffering. I cannot promise you what lays ahead of you, and you don't know either. And anybody that says they can promise it is just trying to sell you something. But I know that there's a God in glory that sits on the other side of the ridge that sees our problems, that there's nothing, nothing, nothing outside of His watch care. I don't know what the next phone call will mean for you, but I know God will still be God after you hang up the phone. I see that David rested in a precedent. Let me say number two, I see that David rested in a power. Verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. And then he says, salvation belongeth to the Lord. It's interesting when you consider what David was thinking about Absalom and what Absalom was thinking about David. Because uh, Absalom, he has two different counselors. He has Hushai, who is uh, a man that is actually uh, on David's side and has not betrayed David, but he's actually there to provide false counsel uh, to, to David. And then there's a man named Ahithophel, who is the grandfather of Bathsheba, who had a vendetta against David, most likely because of what David had done to his granddaughter and to their happy home. And Ahithophel does everything he can to try to destroy David. He sees this as his opportunity to destroy David, his enemy, and to exact vengeance. In fact, when he sees that he's not going to get to be the one that kills David, he goes home, sets his house in order, and takes his own life. That's how bitter he is. By the way, just this is an aside, but that's where bitterness will get you. Bitterness has nothing to offer you but empty vengeance. And even when you get that, you won't be satisfied. Bitterness never did get David, but it sure got Ahithophel. And so Ahithophel wants to see David dead, but Hushai is there to try to prevent that from taking place. And so Hushai is giving advice to try to stop Absalom from pursuing things that Hushai says is that David is a warrior. And he says, if you go after your father, you're no match for him. You can't stand up against him. He'll destroy you. Meanwhile, evidently David, as he pins these words in exile on the run from his son, evidently understood that Absalom was a formidable foe. You know what I found? That oftentimes the things we're the most afraid of are probably more afraid of us. Anybody ever been around wild animals? You know, they always tell you, they say, anybody that that trusts wild animals always says they're more afraid of you than you are of it. I have a little trouble believing that sometimes. Just being honest with you. Uh, maybe some things, I think a snake could be more afraid of me than I am it. I mean, i got legs. And I, I believe, I believe, well, I, you know, listen, I, I believe probably maybe even like a coyote or a, or a dog might be more. I don't believe a grizzly bear is more afraid of me than I am of it. 
in any way, shape, fashion, or form. But it is true that oftentimes the things that we fear the most, when it really comes down to it, it is the fear of the matter that is so paralyzing and not the foe. David was fearful of Absalom, but he, he overcame that fear because he recognized that no matter how powerful, how fierce, and how, how formidable Absalom was, the God that he served was more powerful. And he rested in the fact that though there may be ten thousands of people camped outside the house or the cave that he was in, that God was still in control. I want you to think with me for a moment about the manifestation of this power. He he talks about what God's done in the past. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. I just jotted down three great victories in David's life. And uh, some of them might not seem so great to you, but if you use David, they'd seem pretty great to you. First off, I jotted down the lion and the bear that he smote when he was a young shepherd boy. By the way... Uh, oftentimes God is leading us on a path. He may let you slay, slay a lion and a bear today, but it's probably because He's got a giant waiting for you tomorrow. And He's readying you for something else. And that was the next thing that He slew, was the Goliath giant. and uh, Or the giant Goliath. Well, He was a Goliath giant. He was a Goliath giant named Goliath. Amen? And uh, He slew the, the giant Goliath. And then, of course, all of the enemies. I mean... David essentially exterminated the pagan armies that inhabited Jerusalem. Uh, the Jerusalem itself was the kingdom of the Jebusites before David came in and destroyed all of their strongholds. Over and over and over and over again, David had seen God work mightily. And I would say this, that oftentimes, and listen, if I, if I was preaching at a, at a, at a mission, if I was preaching at the jail, if I was preaching to a bunch of folks that I knew never uh, knew the Lord and didn't have any knowledge of God, then maybe I'd just talk about what He can do. But can I just remind you of what He has done? I'd venture to say that there's everybody in this room could look back at things that God has done, mighty things in their life. If you're saved by the grace of God, then that in and of itself is the greatest miracle one could ever experience. But even beyond that, times that God has made a way when there was no way. He didn't just find a way, He made a way. God has done mighty things. David looks back and he says, you know, every enemy I faced, God has been mighty to slay and to cast down. Then notice the jurisdiction of this power. He says, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. You know how you rest in this power is to recognize that it's not your power. See, that's what we do. We face problems and we get a little nerve about us and we say we're going to take on the problem. And then pretty soon we falter because we know that we're weak. And then we find ourselves in a place of despondency. If we'd remind ourselves at the very get-go that this thing ain't about how strong we are, how powerful we are, how capable we are. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the God that we know and love and serve. He is the one that is capable. You never have been capable. You never will be capable. And the same thing is not just equally, but probably more true of me than it is of you. But the God that we both know and love and serve There's nothing beyond His capability. There's no heart so hard that He can't speak to it. There's no mountain so big that He can't bring it low and no valley so deep He cannot raise it. There's nothing you could face that is bigger than the Lord that we serve. Greater, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And David has learned this very early on. When he stood toe-to-toe 
with the giant Goliath, he said this, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You say, well, that don't sound so tough. Well, you try saying it so much nine foot tall. Amen? It ain't. We live in this world of keyboard warriors where it's easy to type something. But here he is standing toe-to-toe with this guy that could probably step on him and squash him. and Not squash, squash. You're in East Tennessee. Squash him. Amen? And uh, he says this, and then he goes on and he says, All this assembly, everybody around here is going to know, shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle, he said, is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The sooner you recognize this thing ain't about you and what you can do and what you're not able to do, but it's about the Lord and His power, the sooner you'll find peace of mind and rest in the midst of your trouble. And then I see the obligation of this power. He says salvation belongs unto the Lord, so if salvation's going to come, it's going to be the Lord that's going to have to give it. When are we going to learn it's not our responsibility to fix everything? When are we going to learn it's not our responsibility to cast down our foes? There, you say, well, preacher, aren't we responsible to do something? Yeah, the Bible says, having done all to stand, stand. It is our responsibility to be present. It is our responsibility to be consistent and to be patient and to be faithful and to stand. But it's not our job to cast down our foes and our enemies. It's the Lord's. It's His obligation because it's His jurisdiction. I see one more thought and I'm done tonight. Look at the end of verse 8. This is astounding to me. He ends it this way. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. He's resting in a precedent and he's resting in a power. But I would say to you that David, when he pins this psalm, is not in a very blessed condition. If you were to make a list as a king of the good days that you have, you'd probably list days in which your kingdom was... Enlarged, you'd probably maybe list days in which enemies were cast down. You might even list some days when everything just went well. How many of you have ever just rejoiced because nothing went wrong in a day? Amen? Sometimes you take what you can get. But I would venture to say that the day that your son throws you off the throne, kicks you out of the city, uh, sends uh, armies after you to kill you, is probably not a very blessed day. So why does he say that God's blessing is upon his people? He wasn't making this declaration by observation. He was making it by faith. And we see in this passage that he rested in a promise. And it was that. In fact, it wasn't much more than that at that time, but that was enough. It was a promise that God's blessing was upon him no matter what it looked like. Now, I think that sometimes we have to... You know, some people say, well, I'm a, I'm a pessimist. You ever heard people say that? And other people say, well, I'm an optimist. And then some people think they're real smart. They say, well, I'm a realist. That's a real snotty way of saying the other two folks are wrong. Amen? But I'm going to be even snottier than that. I'm a biblicist. Amen? <laughs> I will take into account the reality of the situation. But I will add to that the scriptural truth and biblical perspective that should inform that situation. David is not denying the situation that he's in. He just talked about tens of thousands of enemies that are round about him. But he's saying this, I listen, I don't care what's going on outside this cave or on the other ridge. I know that God loves me 
And I know He's got a plan, even if I can't see it. Even if I can't understand it, I know that He has a plan. David makes this declaration by faith, and it's a reminder to us that God's blessing does not always look pleasant. Uh, there are things that, the Bible says all things work together for good. And some things have to work a little harder. Some things are good right on the face of it. But some things have to work really together to come to good. But we have that promise. Paul's, Paul didn't say we hope that all things work together. He said, and we know that all things work together for good. Not just to anybody. Uh, but the Bible says to them that, that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, to believers that love the Lord and are sub- submitting their life unto Him. God has the ability to take even a situation like David's and turn it for good. And by the way, God did that very thing. God wound up giving the kingdom back to David and doing it in such a way that it ingratiated him under the hearts of the very people who had turned their back on him. God grew David through it, and God blessed David through it. The blessing of God doesn't always look like we wish it did, or hope it will, or expect it to. But the blessing of God is more resolute and concrete and reality than the problems that we face. Your problems might change within 24 hours. They might get better, they might get worse, but God's promises never change. So we don't rest on our situation, we rest in God's promise. That He has a plan and a purpose for what we're going through, even when we don't understand it. I had a couple of points here. I'll just mention them. It was a providential promise. It didn't look like He was very blessed, but David said, even when I don't look like I'm blessed, I know God is blessing me. I know He's using me. I know He has a purpose and a plan. But then I'd say it's a powerful promise because He found rest in it. The Bible says that by the promises of God, we're made partakers of the divine nature. It is through the promises of God, not just through their, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, Not just through their appropriation, but through their apprehension. Not just through us living them, but through us acknowledging them and resting consciously in the fact of them. Do we find peace in the Lord? In other words, your situation may not look any better. After this service tonight. May not look any better when the sun comes up tomorrow. May not look any better a week from now or a year from now. But that doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign and in control and has a plan in it. By the same token, the fact that they look better a week from now or a year from now is no promise you won't face them again. But as long as you're living in those circumstances and as long as you're relying on those circumstances, you'll be tossed to and fro. If you can anchor your spirit to God's inspired, infallible, and errant word and anchor yourself to God's immutable, unchanging promises, then even in exile, you can find peace. And even in the worst of circumstances, you can find hope in the Lord. 